see. So we're going to get started. Let's start with prayer. And thank you for being here this evening for our Wednesday night Bible study. It's so wonderful again to come into a beautiful room. We sit in nice cushioned chairs, with, uh, which is an upgrade from, from Sunday morning. And uh, air conditioning, and uh, yet we are here to hunger for God. That's hard, isn't it? We, we have so many comforts that we can look to in this life. We design our house, houses and the furniture in the houses to be comfortable, to, to where we can go and recline and relax. And yet the Bible says that blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. We, even with all the comforts and all the things, yet we're to stay in our hearts hungry, desperate, and, and humbled before God, desiring Him. So that's what we're praying for tonight. Father, we, we thank you tonight for that reminder, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that it doesn't matter how much wealth or how little wealth we have. It doesn't matter what material goods we possess or don't possess. It doesn't matter what reputation we have in the community or no reputation. What matters is that all of us remain hungry for you that we seek you, that we search for you with all of our heart, Scripture says. David said that as the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul longs for thee, O Lord. When can I come up to the temple to worship you? He, he, he yearned, he longed for the worship of his God. And that's the heart that we have tonight, Lord, as a body. We lay aside all the things of this life that are a blessing to us and from you. And we come with hungry hearts. So fill us up, Lord, as we look to you and you alone for spiritual insight, spiritual understanding, spiritual nourishment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in chapter 7, we get the detailed construction of Solomon's palace and details about the furnishings of the temple. Last week in chapter 6, we learned about the details of the construction of the temple. And tonight, it's the construction of the palace and the details surrounding it. And then he looks at, in chapter 8, we begin to see, uh, and even chapter 7, he talks about the furnishings of the temple. So we're covering a lot of ground. Chapter 7 is actually... A long chapter, but it's a very detailed construction manual. <laughs> so if you are in the construction industry, you might enjoy that more than the average person. And that's why I've given you a picture tonight so that you can actually see. And again, this is not an exact replication because no one knows exactly where on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem Solomon's temple was built, nor do we know exactly where his palace was constructed. So, uh, but, but what we do know is the pictures that you see are to scale. They're the same scale as they should be back when Solomon built them. So let's go ahead, if we can, and look at the picture just for a second. You're gonna, we're going to learn tonight about these pillars that surround the palace and uh, you're going to see the house of the forest of Lebanon, which are the pillars that surround the, the first building on the left. 
uh, and, and then you've got the house behind it, uh, the porch of pillars, and uh, then the porch of the throne. Uh, Solomon constructed a huge, if you've ever seen old movies of uh, Knights of the Round Table, these kinds of movies where you see these halls, these huge long halls in the king's throne is at the other end and when you come into the presence of the king you have to walk this distance and it all speaks of reverence it speaks of authority it speaks of you being sovereign or being under the sovereignty of that king well that's basically what solomon built in in that portion of his house um, then the whole thing is on top of mount moriah mount moriah where abraham offered up isaac Mount Moriah, where Jesus Christ was put to the cross. So from the very beginning, Mount Moriah was the place of sacrifice. And uh, it still is. When Solomon built this temple, it was a place for sacrifice. And then across the huge courtyard, you have the temple. You might notice if, if the, the rendering, I did it in draft form so it would print quicker, so it's not as clear. But you might notice the, the, the gate outside of the courtyard, and then there's an enter gate. Remember the psalm that says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Well, that's exactly what it's a reference to, and you're actually seeing it. So if you put that into modern time, to our time, when we come to church at Stormgrove School, when we climb out of our cars, you're, you're outside the gate but we're coming to the gate, you know, when we walk through the gates and we should enter the gates with thanksgiving. So what it looks like is on the way to church, the kids are screaming in the back seat and you're, ah, come on, be quiet. You get there and all of a sudden you come into this worshipful mode right as you walk through the gates. You enter the courtyard area of Stormgrove with praise on your lips for God. How many of you could say you've been there as parents? You, you did that to some degree. Yeah, we all did, you know. Obviously, our God no longer lives in a house uh, that's, that's outside of us. So what I just described for you is more of a joke because obviously He lives in us. He is with us 24-7. All the time He is with us. So, but this is just a, a drawing of that. I want you to have it, and you do, so you can... Some of you have even a better drawing possibly in your study Bible, and that's fine too. Uh, let's go ahead, if we can, and begin at chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. I will not uh, read the entire chapter. That's very unusual for us. We always go verse by verse. This is so tedious in construction talk that it would just, and there's so much of it. We're gonna, what we're going to do is, instead of our verse by verse, which is a ground level walking through the passage, we're going to get on the airplane, a jet, and fly up. I've got to say jet because we just had the air show. Saw the Blue Angels. Powerful. Wow. We're going to, we're going to go up to 20,000 feet. And we're going to fly over chapter 7. We're going to look at it from a summary view rather than a detailed view. And then we'll come back down. We'll land the jet and go into chapter 8. And we'll, we'll do our verse-by-verse -verse ground level study. Uh, kind of giving you a picture of where we're going. By the way, I just remembered, and I shouldn't have forgotten this, we need to be praying for Emily Sartain, the youngest of the Sartain girls, and uh, she is in the hospital right now. 
uh, has a very high uh, white cell blood count, way too high. And so let's, can we just stop a moment and offer a prayer? That's why I was texting. I wasn't trying to keep myself from you and not walk around, but I was texting one of our, well, it was uh, uh, Sherry Frazier, our children's director, giving her that info so that she could follow up while we're meeting tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up little Emily to you. We lift up Mark and Kelly Sartain and the other children as well. As they are down at Lawnwood in Fort Pierce, we're praying, Lord, that you would give understanding and wisdom to the doctors as they try to take a look and that uh, Mark and Kelly would use wisdom in the decision-making based on what they hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would just touch little Emily. We do ask for healing. We ask that you would divinely touch and heal her. And yet we also always, knowing that you are sovereign and that nothing happens without your knowledge and your, uh, your speaking to it in terms of it happening. I mean, it's, it only happens by you, by your approval. And so, Lord, we're praying that your will and your work would be done and this little girl would uh, be spared any, uh, any further uh, issues in this area. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm glad I did that. Now, verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. So, we learned last week that the temple of God was built in seven years. This house was built in 13 years. Solomon's reign was 40 years. So for most, actually all of his, all of the first part, first half of his reign, he was building. They said that he probably started the building. It said last week he started in year four of his reign. But, that, but he was laying everything out prior to that. He was probably already from his ver the very beginning ordering the cedars of Lebanon and it took time for them to arrive so that by the fourth year he started. So what we have is the first half of Solomon's reign, he is honoring God. He is very much putting God in his rightful place. I wish we could say that for the second half of his reign. But we're not focused on that tonight. Tonight we're focused on the things that this king is doing to honor God. So, we see the priority of Solomon. First, he built the house of the Lord. Secondly, he built his own house, a palace. Now, there are scholars, there are theologians who interpret this differently. Some will say that his priorities were messed up because he only took seven years to build the temple and he took 13 years to build his own house. So he was more about himself than he was God. But there are some things that I want us to look at that I think might reveal why the house of the Lord could be built in seven and why he took more time on his own. I choose to take the other view that the priority of Solomon was to build God's house first. He did not build his own place first. Okay? So... Uh, if we go back and look at how this idea of building the house of God even came about, it might help us. The idea didn't start with Solomon. Uh, it was his father, David, who came to God and said, I, through Nathan the prophet, and said, I'd like to build a house for you. I built this palace for myself, David said, and yet you continue to, to visit us from the tent. 
and it's not right for me to live in a palace and you to live in a tent. And I think David actually said, it's not right for me to live uh, in the cedars of Lebanon that he had used to build the inside of his house and for you to live in a tent. And so really it was David, it was not Solomon who came up with the concept of the temple. Second uh, Samuel, turn there, why don't we take our time here for just for a moment. I know we're going to fly quickly over this chapter, but here in the beginning, I think this is worthy of our time. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse 1, and we'll read down through like verse 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Unfortunately, Nathan was speaking before he sought the Lord. Not everything a prophet said was of God. They had to be speaking the things of the Lord when they were operating in the gift of prophecy. In this case, Nathan just kind of jumped the gun a little bit. And in verse 4, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built, a, built me a house of cedar? So God is making it clear through Nathan, number one, Nathan, I didn't tell you to say that to David. You were acting on your own. And then number two, I'm, I didn't ask David for a house. Now, if you read further in Samuel and also in 1 Kings, you begin to see that God uh, did in fact honor David for wanting to build him a house. Not by allowing David to build it, by, but by allowing David to know your offspring, Solomon, will build that house that you want to build for me. You will not build it because you have blood on your hands. You went to battle. The one who builds it needs to have clean hands in terms of not having killed others. And so it was David's idea to build the house for God, not Solomon's. Now, looking at the sovereignty of God, here's what we know. Even though it shows us that David was the one who wanted to build God a house, and even though God told Nathan, I didn't ask for this, but God did put it in the heart of David to ask. You say, how do you know that? Because it, got, it was built, and God honored the building. When it was dedicated, God showed up. So God is always in front of everything that we do that is righteous and that is just and that has lasting, uh, in, uh, lasting effect in the kingdom of God. So, so what Solomon did was carry out his father's order which the Lord had signed off on. We also know, in, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We'll pick it up at verse 11. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple 
and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts, the house of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord. For all the vessels for the service in his house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver vessels for each service, the weight of golden lampstands and their lamps, the weight of gold for each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of silver for a lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lampstand in the service, the weight of gold for every table for the showbread. And there, were more, there was more than we often think of more of one table for the showbread. Not in the Solomon's temple. That's not accurate. We'll look at that in a moment. The silver for the silver tables. The pure gold for the forks, the basins, and the cups for the golden bowls and the weight of each. For the silver bowls and the weight of each. For the altar of incense made of refined gold and its weight. Also his plans uh, for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the, of the Lord. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be done according to the plan. So, when you say it's, that it reveals Solomon's priorities that are they're whacked out, that they're not right, for Solomon to spend tw almost twice as much time building the, pa uh, the, the pa palace as the, the temple, I would say to you, Solomon simply did what his father David, who God approved, he only built what David wanted. And it took seven years to do it. So we can't fault Solomon for taking quite as long uh, or so much extra time with the, uh, the palace. Now, by the way, you do know that God could never be contained in any temple. You do know that, right? Uh, just for a quick, write it down, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. And I'll read it for you, you don't have to turn. 2 Chronicles 2, 5 and 6. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. Now we know the purpose for the, the building of the house. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about our solar system, the size, the magnitude of just our solar or our galaxy? And there are so many galaxies that we know of. But yet beyond what we know, there's even more. And all of it was created by God and none of it can contain him. Not even the third heaven can contain him. That just puts a completely different picture for me of the greatness and the sovereignty of my God. Nothing, as Scripture says, is too difficult for me. Nothing. Because I have a God that's greater. Amen? Now, why did it take 13 years to build Solomon's palace? We've, we've come to understand why the temple was only seven years, and it really wasn't Solomon's decision. It was what his father David gave him, and God had signed off on it. But what about the 13 years to build the palace? 
A number of scholars want to say that it was because Solomon had priorities wrong, but to answer the question why it took 13 years, let's first look at an important passage in 1 Kings chapter 3. We have to go back to chapter 3. And you'll remember that Solomon asked God for wisdom and discernment to rightly rule God's people, the Israelites, right? Remember that? God came to Solomon, what do you wish? And Solomon said, I'd love to have some discernment and wisdom that I might rightly rule and discern over your people. And then God gave a response to Solomon's request in verse 11, 1 Kings 3, verse 11. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding and understanding so that you might uh, discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. Now, I want to stop just for a second before we get to the meat of what we're, about, what we're trying to say here. There are people today who put the power in the word to the point that whatever they say, they think it'll happen. If I speak it, it'll happen. There are preachers that teach that. And if I speak a negative, man, I'm putting a curse. I can't do that. I, I won't speak a negative. If I'm sick, I'm not going to acknowledge that I'm sick. I had somebody recently come to me and they said, Pastor Greg, the doctors lied to me. I said, really? And I knew this person had cancer. They said, yeah, they're telling me that I have cancer. The woman has cancer. What she's saying is, I'm not going to receive it. I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to give word to it. And others believe that if I speak a word, it will happen. That is not what's happening here. Solomon only asked for discernment and wisdom because God came to him and said, what would you want me to grant you? It was a very unique situation. You can't take that text out of context and make it work for your own theology, which generally means my life is about me, myself, and I, and what I speak, it happens, and if I give a curse, it'll happen, and wow, it's ridiculous. So, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been, has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. Now, look what he says in verse 13. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. So much riches and honor that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So God made Solomon unique as a king in his riches and his honor, as well as his discernment and wisdom. So much so that no other king could compare to Solomon. So, building a grand palace would help convey the message to the kings of the earth. This is how the Lord made his name great through Solomon. When Solomon built those things, the way he built them, it honors the word that God gave him. And he was to be seen as a king that had unique wealth and unique honor among all kings. And so the palace reflects that. They would send emissaries from other lands. They would have kings visit, queens, the queen of Sheba, 
came and visited Solomon. So you've got kings and queens and emissaries coming from all other lands. And Solomon had peace with all of them. And they would come and see the magnificence of his palace, the magnificence of the temple, and most of all, the magnificence of his wisdom and his discernment. So there are reasons for it that maybe don't line up with the, the, the view that he took twice as long to build his own house, but only half the amount of time to build God's house. On the surface, that's an easy answer to give. I'm not sure it holds weight in Scripture. Now, I'll say this in closing on that point. Who knows for sure? So I'm not giving you this is the way it is. This is what I believe. This is what I believe is very uh, likely. And you have to just wait and ask God when you get to heaven. And he'll tell you. Okay. Uh, now for the 11 verses, next 11 verses, verse 2 through 12, we see the splendor of Solomon's palace. And just to summarize, there was a, so much cedar wood from Lebanon used in the building of this grand palace that they called it the House of the Forest of Lebanon. They put cedars, pillars, all the way around this part of the house so that when you walked up, it made you think of the forest of Lebanon up in Sidon and Tyre. And uh, so this was also a way of showing appreciation to King Hiram of Sidon who provided all these cedars for Solomon. Remember now, this is the palace. They had already provided so much cedar wood uh, for the temple before this. Uh, 45 pillars on this building. You can actually see it there. 45 pillars on the house uh, for the palace for Solomon. And uh, we do not know the function of every building in Solomon's palace, but the Hall of Judgment was mentioned as the place where Solomon heard legal disputes and he judged between competing parties. That's back in verse 7 here. Beyond that, the purpose of the other buildings are really obscure. Nobody really knows. Uh, but you see the layout. We only had that layout because God was so specific in the, the size and the, the magnitude of these buildings. Uh, whatever the case, costly stones, beautiful cedar, and other fine materials featured, were featured in the palace's construction. And as we continue down to verse 13 and 14, we learn that Solomon brought a man from Tyre. His name was Huram, H-U-R-A-M, Huram. He was the greatest craftsman in that day in the region. And this man came from uh, up north, I'm talking, you know, a, a long distance. And he came from the land where they had the cedar trees, and he was a fine craftsman. Guys, those of you who do construction and carpentry work, wouldn't you have loved to have seen the work of this man? And if you read further in the details of what he built and the beautiful decorations and ornaments on the wood, it, it's amazing. And they brought him in. But here's, the intro, here's why I bring this up, this one little point. This guy was half Israeli and half Gentile. Now, all the cedars came from a king who was a Gentile to build the house of the Lord. So while in that day and even in the day of Jesus, the Jews despised Gentiles. We talked about it last week, I believe, where we said that, you know, 
The Jews would never walk in the, in the dust of a Gentile. They would literally go to the other side of the street. They didn't want to follow in the dust of a, of a Gentile. And if they did, they would stop and shake the dust off their feet because you're below me. And, and yet, uh, we know that Paul, while he was in Pisidia, they, the, the, the Jews rejected the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul shook the dust off of his feet, saying, you are below the Gentiles. You have to believe in God's sovereignty all the way back in the Old Testament under the law of Moses where Gentiles were uncircumcised. Yet he knew what was coming. God's bigger than the categorizing of people. And we easily, especially in this day, everybody is distinguished by some category, some identity profile. Not according to God. Let me tell you what's on the earth today. Sinners and saints. And he doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. So he wants everybody to be a saint. But there's a lot of sinners, a lot more sinners than there are saints. I don't say that boastingly. I don't say that arrogantly. I don't say it obnoxiously. I'm not trying to stir up an argument with a person who's unsaved. I'm called and commanded to love them. I'm just stating the truth. Jesus is the one who makes it clear that in, when he returns, there's going to be a whole lot more folks who don't go to heaven than do. Wide is the gate that leads to eternal death and damnation. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. And this is what he said, and few there are that find it. That's Jesus' understanding at the end. So long after we're gone, whenever the Lord returns, few in terms of the size and magnitude of the earth's population over the centuries, few will go to heaven. Hmm. Now, over the next 47 verses, verse 15 through 51, we see Hiram craft the needs, the, the furnishings of, of the temple, and basically he patterns everything that he fashions after the tabernacle furnishings. What God had instructed, instructed Moses to build in the tent of meeting in the holy place and the holy of holies, which was supposed to be a picture of heaven, the same thing is happening now in the Solomon's temple. You have a holy place and you have a holy of holies. And then it talks about these two pillars of bronze. These were very impressive pillars. One was named Jachin and the other Boaz. Jachin means he has established. That was on one side of the entry point of the temple. You can even see it, I think you can see it in the, yeah, you can see those two pillars in the entry of the temple. One was on the left was Jachin and the other one is Boaz. So you have he shall establish, Boaz means in him is strength. So he shall establish is next to in him is strength. You enter in, this would be the priest, that would not be the people. The people never entered into the holy place which was outside the, whole, the, the Holy of Holies. But the priest did, and this was the reminder, he shall establish. Whatever you do is by his strength. 
What a beautiful, beautiful statement for God to leave for them. And, and really, it's, a, it's an act of God's grace that God would give us strength to come and worship Him. Amen? So this is exactly how we believe today. We should approach each day, get up in the morning, being ever mindful of God's grace and of our utter dependence on Him. He is our strength for today. Because now our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us, and we should rise in the morning thinking of those two pillars. Okay? It's beautiful. He shall establish, and in Him is strength. Some believe that these pillars were meant to remind Israel of the twin pillars from the Exodus. Remember the pillar of fire by day, or fire by night, and the pillar of cloud by day? Uh, they were constant reminders to Israel that God is with you. You're not alone in the wilderness. So every time someone would see the pillars when going to temple, it set them in the right frame of mind for the worship of God. Everything about the building itself of the temple and the furnishings spoke to worship. That's why today it is so important that a church, when they gather together, when church comes together, that we don't share the glory of God. He gets all the glory. Man should never get glory. Never. And, and in our worship, the pure, purity of worship is that we keep our eyes on Him and Him alone. So for that reason, we don't spend a lot of time with special songs that people sing. Um, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying that when we emphasize a person who gets up and sings with their gift, it can easily, it can go to their head. It can also cause people to listen more of it out of entertainment. Oh, I love to hear them sing. No, you should be saying, I love to worship God as they sing. Big difference. There's a difference. So we, we can do it, but we need to be careful that we not move away from the worship of God ever, ever. Uh, then they talk about the sea of cast metal or the sea of bronze. And this is the huge labor that was more than 15 foot across. It's a pool. They built a pool out of bronze. It was used for the ceremonial washings connected with the temple. In addition, Hiram made 10 labors of bronze. Each labor contained 40 baths. Each labor contained 40 baths. This would have been used by the priests for cleansing uh, their hands and their feet and perhaps even to supply water to the standing basins for the rinsing of offerings. It's possible that there were fountains that the water would move through to cleanse and as they would make sacrifices. Uh, the volume of the sea, this, this sea of cast metal, was 2,000 baths. I don't know if we can get the magnitude. And I looked at this picture trying to see, and you can see there, but it doesn't show the full magnitude of this beautiful structure. It's incredible. The table of gold which held the showbread was actually, according to 2 Chronicles 4.8, it was 10 tables of showbread. Here they describe all 10 collectively as a unit. And lastly, he describes all the great works of art and articles of great value which were placed in the temple. This includes the ten carts 
and the shovels, the bowls, and other needed utensils for the sacrifices made at temple to the Lord. So Solomon brought in the things which his father David began collecting when he learned that he would not be the one to build the temple. That never dampened David's spirit when God said, you won't build it. David went into fundraising mode and he raised silver and gold. He gave of his own treasury so that everything Solomon needed was already available and in place. That's pretty cool. Now we move to chapter 8. Any questions on chapter 7 before we go to chapter 8? Yes. Yes. And then Yes, the first part is the building of the palace. The second part is looking more specifically at the furnishings of the temple. Last chapter, chapter 6, was the actual building of the temple. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, chapter 8. Uh, I, forgive me, those watching from live stream, I should have shared the question that Maureen asked or the statement that she made, but I answered it, so I think you got the, the gist of it. Uh, verse 1, chapter 8, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So after the temple was erected, Solomon assembled the elders, he assembled the heads of tribes, and the leaders of households. And Solomon intends on dedicating the temple in a spectacular opening ceremony much like what we would think of in the Olympic opening ceremony, okay? Uh, and this was the dedication of the temple, not his palace. The high note was bringing up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The temple wasn't ready to operate until the Ark of the Covenant was set in the most holy place. The Ark, of the most it, the ark is the most important piece of the temple, now, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, write that down. 1 Kings 6, 38, it tells us that the temple was finished in the 8th month. Yet when we read above in verse 1 of chapter 8, it was the 7th month that they had the grand opening. What does that mean? It means that they went almost a year, 11 months, before they had the dedication of the temple. So it was erected. And then they waited 11 months. Why? Because it gave the people, the Israelites, time for the first fruits to come in and to make that at the Feast of Tabernacle, to make uh, that, that blessing, that, that dedication to God. So there's always this beautiful picture of worship in, the, in everything they do. Uh, verse 3, And all the elders of Israel came, and priests took up the ark, only the priests, by the way, could touch the ark. Only certain ones, uh, the Kohathite tribe, which is a tribe of Levi. Uh, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. 
And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark. Can you imagine what that must have been like to see them use these huge staves that would fit into the ark and they would lift it and they would carry it and the people standing to the sides watching as the ark of covenant of the Lord passed by heading into the temple. Can you imagine that? They had been told story after story of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and how God dwelled with man in and through that, that Ark of the Covenant. Moses would get up and he would head to the temple and the people would come out of their tents when Moses would walk by and as he got to the tent of meeting and would walk in, all of a sudden a cloud would come and rest over the temple. God's presence would rest and they would see it. Now they see what was behind those closed curtains, the ark itself coming up. Beautiful scene. And Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark. And here's what they were doing. Sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So many blood sacrifices because in Leviticus it says, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so they're making sacrifice after sacrifice. So many they cannot even count. This is all preparation for the opening of the temple of God. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. Someone asked me Sunday uh, after service, was how, you know, how, or I forget, maybe it was last Wednesday, uh, about the cherubim. How do we know what the cherubim even looked like? And I did some research on that. You remember back in, in the Garden of Eden when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden and he set two cherubim with flaming sword that would cross so that man could never enter back into the Garden of Eden and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or, or the tree of life. So they passed down through the centuries. Adam and Eve saw, they knew what the cherubim looked like. Cherubim are a, an angel. I, I would like to tell you there's a hierarchy of angels. The Bible doesn't say there's a hierarchy, but generally we, we see it that way. And cherubim and seraphim, would be the angels that minister in the presence of God. Doesn't mean that they're better than the other angels, but it does mean they were in the throne room closest to God, ministering to the Lord. What was their ministry? It was several things. One, it was singing. They would say with their mouths, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Cherubim and seraphim. If you remember the picture of Isaiah in Isaiah 6.1, he saw the Lord in the temple. He experienced that. He also saw cherubim. So we have several instances in the Old Testament where cherubim showed up and we could see them. Uh, in the case of Isaiah, it was the seraphim. And if you remember what he saw, he saw 
seraphim who were in the presence of God and with two wings, they had each seraphim had three sets of wings. With two wings they flew, with two wings they covered their eyes in the presence of God. And with two wings, they covered their feet. That's how holy our God is. That not even the seraphim would look at him in his presence. They covered their feet because that really is the part of your body that connects with the soil of this earth. And so they're covered in the presence of God. It was such a heavenly, beautiful scene. And so here he mentions these seraphim that were in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest saw them. Only the high priest saw the ark. And what a beautiful thing that they're seeing. So verse 7, For the cherubim spread out their wings over the palace or place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. So in other words, the poles, you could see the, the outside edges of the poles. If you were in the holy place, you could see those uh, at that point. But outside the temple, you couldn't see anything. People never got to see this. So that's why them bringing up the ark, that was the time the people could see. They were blown away by it. You know, by what they, knowing what it represents to bring the Ark of the Covenant up. And verse 9, there was nothing in the Ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now that's the most crucial part of the dedication because everything must be followed exactly as God prescribes here when carrying the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, Solomon would very much remember the story of his own father who was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem and the men who were, had put it on the ox cart, the Kohathites, a tribe of Levi, were hauling the Ark on an ox cart and of course it hit a, either a bump in the road or a hole, a manhole, and <laughs> it fell over. And, and it was, who was it? What was his name? I can't, Uriah? Uzziah, thank you, Peggy. So Uzziah reaches out to steady the ark from falling into the mud. And immediately he's struck dead. Because God had made it very clear to the Levites and certainly the tribe of Kohath, because they were the ones that had the responsibility of carrying the furnishings and the utensils of God's tabernacle when they would move. And he said, I will be treated as holy. And basically, uh, I heard uh, R.C. Sproul do a teaching on this, and he said, uh, you know, it just seems so harsh of God to strike someone dead when they're trying to, to steady the Ark of the Covenant. But then the question came up, so what is more holy, the man who tried to steady the Ark or the mud on the ground? When has the mud disobeyed God? If the sun shows up, the mud dries up. If it rains, the, it turns back to mud again. It's fully obedient to the way God created it. 
Man, on the other hand, not so much. So, so this is the picture here, and they're being very careful. Solomon was careful to obey what God commanded about transporting the ark. The ark of the covenant was not, you know, at that time, it was one item inside. But originally, it was three items. Three items. Let me give them to you. Okay? First, uh, you had the two, the two uh, stones that God gave Moses. Okay? And, and that was important. You also had the golden bowl or pot that held the manna that God gave the Israelites in the field. And then thirdly, you had the scepter, the rod that budded. All three of those were in. We don't know, when it comes in now, there's only one item in it, and that is the tablets. We don't know what happened to the other two items. The Bible does not tell us what happened to them, whether they were stolen when, when the ark was passed around and it went through the Philistines and all that. We don't know. But it's probably best that they not be found because what would happen if somehow they found that rod that budded? What would happen if they found uh, the, uh, the bowl with the manna in it? People would worship it. They would travel around the globe. I mean, already somebody sees a, what appears to be Mary with a tear coming out of her eye on a wall or somewhere, and they will travel across the world to go and see and experience that. That is not the worship of God. That's the worship of signs and, and, and of man. So I'm okay with the fact that it's not there and that it's never been found. I'm okay with that. We're not to worship any of those items. Amen? Okay. Verse 5, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not count, be counted or numbered. Uh, Solomon went far beyond custom and expectation in his effort to honor and praise God on this day. Now, it's interesting that we learn from, from this passage that uh, the only thing in the ark was the tablets. And what's interesting is uh, what we have today is the Lord in our hearts Christians should not hold on to any uh, type of relic. If you go to the Catholic Church, different cathedrals, they have relics. They've got hearts that are in jars of certain saints, and all the things, and people go and, oh, I just worship and whatever. There's none of that in the worship of God. So it's best for us to simply keep our focus on the Lord who lives inside of us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? And not get caught up with all the other stuff. Verse 10, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's how we know that this building was right in the eyes of God because he showed up. If you want to know if a ministry is of the Lord, you will see God's promises come true. It's like a church that believes that, uh, like us, we're looking at to one day have a facility that we can call home and minister out of seven days a week. <laughs> 
And uh, we, we, are, we are trusting the Lord for that. And when it happens, God and God alone will get all the glory for it. It's almost like that's when you know that the Lord is with you. Think about in your life. You say, now, now what's the difference between that and me asking God for a brand new car and then I get a brand new car, I guess God's with me. No, you could actually finance that on your own and God never even know, have anything to do with it. No, no, it's when you lay claim by faith to the promises that God has given and then God delivers, he gets all the glory. You know, there's a beautiful thing. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you have asked God to provide because in his word, he promised that he would provide? Let's take salvation. You came to salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? Don't you want to praise God for that and celebrate what God has done in you? It's a beautiful thing. And so, so here we see that they have built this temple for the Lord, and God has honored the building because it was according to his word. Okay? Now, in verse, verse 10 again, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So the cloud filled the house of the Lord. And what was it that filled the house of the Lord? It was the glory of God. Often you would see that in the Old and the New Testament, the glory of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. It's hard to define the glory of God, but let me give you a simple definition, okay? It's the radiant outshining of his character and presence. It's the radiant outshining of his character and presence. You cannot see the glory of God unless God is present. And you cannot describe the glory of God, but you know it's, it's glory. It's beyond description. It's beyond understanding. So here it was manifested in a cloud. Now, this is the cloud that stood by Israel in the wilderness. This same cloud of glory uh, God spoke to uh, Israel from uh, is the cloud from which God met with Moses and others on the mountain. It's the cloud that stood by the door of the tabernacle. It's the cloud from which God appeared to the high priest in the holy place inside the, the veil. This is the cloud of Ezekiel's vision, filling the temple of God with the brightness of his glory. This is the cloud of glory that overshadowed Mary when she conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the cloud present at the transfiguration of Jesus. It's the cloud of glory that received Jesus into heaven at his ascension. And this is the cloud that will come when Jesus returns. Is that not awesome? There is a parallel to this event in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. When the Holy Spirit showed up, he came in cloven tongues of fire. The glory of God showed up on the day of Pentecost. So the glory of the Lord was so great in the temple that when the ark was brought into the Holy of Holies, 
the priest could not continue to minister. That was the role of a priest, was to minister before the Lord, right? They couldn't do it. They couldn't move. They were arrested. They were apprehended by the presence of God. Think about that. Uh, the sense of the presence of God was so intense that the priest felt it was impossible to continue. In our humanness, we try uh, to bring God down to our level. We, we talk about His love and His grace, His love and His grace, and, the lo and His goodness. Oh, God is so good. God is so love. So it, it, we get up and say, hey, Daddy, how you doing today? Hey, Papa, what's going on? And we have almost like a careless, a reckless view of God. Just because God is good and God is love never replaces that He is holy. And He is to be respected. He is to be held in awe. I, I once heard a testimony of a man who said that he gets up in the morning and goes in to shave and sometimes Jesus just shows up in there while he's shaving. He sees Him in the mirror. And he just has a conversation with Jesus. How does that line up with this? If God showed up in your bathroom when you're shaving, you would cease to shave. You would fall over as though dead in the presence of a holy God. We, we conjure up these concepts, and the reality is it doesn't line up with Scripture. Yes, He's good. Yes, He's love. But He is holy. I just think it's so important. No, it, it, uh, let's remember this. The intense sense of immense uh, holiness of the Lord can never be described as a warm and fuzzy. Yet that's what people talk about. They get a warm, and, a warm fuzzy feeling. I go to church because I get a warm, fuzzy feeling. Okay, but you didn't experience God in that. It's not about warm fuzzies. If you want warm fuzzy, go read Chicken Soup for the Soul. Get you a cup of coffee on a rainy day, curl up in the corner of, a, of your living room, and read Chicken Soup for the Soul. But if you want to be in the presence of God, it quiets you, it humbles you, it breaks you, it reveals your sinfulness because He's so holy. The last thing you do is treat him cavalier. The difference between the priests in Solomon's day and us today is that we operate under the new covenant. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we've been purchased with the blood of Jesus, not with a multitude of animal sacrifices. So we walk in a new covenant, a covenant of grace and truth. Grace and truth. They operated under the law, the old covenant, which required the sacrifice of millions of animals. We came through Christ to God. It's just a better way. It just is, church. You ought to be giving thanks and shouting hallelujah to God that you live in an age when grace and truth has been completed through Christ in you. But from the building of this temple, the glory remained at the temple until Israel utterly rejected God in the days of the divided monarchy and the divided kingdom. The prophet Ezekiel said that he saw the glory depart from the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, there's going to come a day from this chapter in chapter 8, a day's coming when the glory will depart from Israel.
from this temple. And you can say that you have a church that you belong to, but only if the Spirit of God dwells there is it a church. And if you disobey God and you don't honor God and you, you literally uh, throw it up in His face, your sinfulness, the Spirit of the Lord will depart from that place too. He, he's not playing a religious game with us. He's holy. Even though we live in grace and truth, He's holy. And that's what truth is about. I, I have to deal with the truth. It's not just about what I feel. I have to deal with the truth of God's Word and let that do surgery in my heart. It's one thing to say you love God. It's another thing to walk by His Word. Very important. Let's remember this, the intense presence of God. Men like Peter experienced it. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter experienced it. He was there with Jesus and he had been fishing all night, caught nothing. And he's a seasoned fisherman with his own boat. And Jesus walks out there and he said, why don't you throw that net on the other side? And Peter's like, okay, I know you're special, you're spiritual, but I think I know fishing better than you. I've fished all night. It's not going to do any good. He did it. He obeyed Jesus. And he couldn't pull in all the fish. It almost swamped his boat. They had to get other boats to come out and help get the net out of the water. So many fish. And what did Peter do when he realized he was in the presence of God? It says he fell down. This is just the truth of it. Isaiah comes into the temple to, to uh, mourn the death of King Uzziah and ends up seeing the Lord. And the first words out of his mouth after seeing the Lord, I am unclean. And I live among a people who have unclean lips. Immediately he was confronted by his sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. Think about in Revelation, John. In Revelation 1.17, he was stricken when he came into the presence of God. It's because these men simply could not be comfortable sensing the, di the difference between their sinfulness and the holiness of God. That's what it's like to be in God's presence. Never is it out of control, just free, do whatever you want, whatever goes. Somebody was telling me of, of a church in their worship service while they are singing songs in the service they had beach balls that people were hitting during worship. During worship of God, kicking, ooh, ooh, hitting the beach balls. That's the mixture of God worship and man entertainment. God does not share his glory with anyone. So, Verse 14, then the king turned around and blessed all the, of Israel, the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And there he said, be, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, 
Since the day I brought my people, Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, for the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. That's as far as I'm going to let you go with it. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for, the, for my name. Now the Lord fulfilled his promise that he had made. See, it's the fulfillment of promises of God. That's what we seek. We walk in faith in the promise of God. We don't come up with our own promise. We don't come up with our own ideas. It starts with God, and then we ask God to do what he said he was going to do. Okay? Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So it's always glorious to stand and see the fulfillment of God's work. Amen? I, I do that every Sunday. When we gather on the weekends... I stand in amazement at the, at the work of God because we didn't decide to have, be a church. God called us to be a church. And when you look at and we see the people. We had a lady Sunday, this is the most beautiful thing. I wish the whole church could have experienced it firsthand, but uh, I ministered to a woman the, the week before, and she told me that she believed Jesus was the Son of God, but not God. Somehow there was a separation there. She also gave a lot of attention and credence to other world religions. And I had to go, we had lunch with someone after service, and they were waiting on it. I said, I don't have time to sit with you right now. Can we get together next Sunday after church? I just wanted to have time to explain to her that Jesus is God. So we got together, together this Sunday. Her husband and her teenage daughter were there with her, and they were very concerned for her, knowing that she's not... I said, you, you do know that if you don't believe Jesus is God, you, you know that you're not saved. And she'd been around the church for years. And she said to me, well, I believe in God. I said, well, the devil, Satan believes in God. That's not enough. You have to believe in Jesus as the son of God who died for you. And I said, who, who created the heavens and the earth? She said, God. I said, are you sure about that? She goes, yeah, God. I took her to Colossians chapter 1, that he is, he is a picture of the invisible God, Jesus, and that he created all things, and in him all things are held together. This is Jesus. This is not God the Father. This is Jesus the Son. He's God. And all of a sudden, the light came on. She just began to tear up. And I said, do you now believe that Jesus is God? That he went to the cross to suffer a cruel death on your behalf and forgive you of your sins? She just, yes. And I said, would you like to pray right now and receive Jesus as your Savior? Yes. 
and her husband and her daughter were weeping. Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God. See, it's God's promise that if we are faithful to share the gospel, he will save people. So I stood there just overwhelmed, seeing a promise of God fulfilled. What a joy. That, that, that's, it, that's what Vero Bible is all about. Seeing God's promises fulfilled. Amen? It has to be. It can't be anything else. Otherwise, thank you. It's not a church. That's right. I think we ought to stop right there. We'll stop at verse 21. We'll pick up verse 22 next week and go forward. Does anybody have any questions about anything or a comment that you would like to make? Yes, Ron. Amen. He's giving them warning. And I find it interesting as a builder, when Solomon's building this temple, he calls for this uh, harem. He's the craftsman of all craftsmen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you ask how Solomon's house was possibly, it took longer. Yeah. But I think he gave that builder full reins. You saw what you did with the temple. You have full right to build my house. <laughs> That's possi very kept, possible. And he just kept going. Yeah. Through. Amen. And it was the finest of finest. Yes. But God's warning was... Yeah, it was, a, it was a conditional promise. That was it. If you obey, then... And it's the same for church today. It is. And up to this point in time in the story, they are obeying. And God shows up and blesses it. Kind of cool. Anybody else? Peggy? Where is the switch from the house and the tower to the temple in chapter 8? Where is the switch? Somebody look that up real quick. I mean, I'll take a look as well. Okay, verse 6 and 7 is the switch. Oh, chapter 6 is the building of the temple. Chapter 7 is the building of the palace. But then he comes back to the furnishings for the temple. 713, thank you. I love when we help each other with this stuff. That's good. Anyone else have any questions? Kathy, you had a hand up? Well, salvation comes through repentance right, of sin. God, God, how he said, God loves everyone, doesn't matter. Yeah, see, 
That's that's almost like. Okay. Yeah. It's it's sad, you know. Man's man's tendency is to move away from God's standard for salvation for church, and it's very important that we keep our nose to the plow. You know what the scripture says? It said, "You need to take heed, or you also will be deceived." So it's easy. It's easy for us to see where somebody else is missing it, like this case that you're speaking of. And we take our eyes off of the Lord because we're looking at what, what is happening over there or over here or whatever. We, we too can be tempted and sin. We need to make sure that we stay true to the Word of God. And when we start to drift, that somebody say, wait a second here. <laughs> That's not what the Scripture says. We not become that church that kind of has its own gospel apart from the gospel of Christ. Yeah, we were commanded to confront sin. Amen. That's right. Amen. Anybody else? Okay. Well, let's close our time in prayer and thank you for coming tonight. Lord, we do close tonight this service with gratitude in our heart for the word of God. And I don't know how you used the, the, the passage to speak to hearts in this room. But what I do know is the word of God never returns void. So your word is at work and your spirit is speaking. May we heed what he is saying to us, what we have learned from the word of God. And may we line our lives up with it that we might receive and understand the fullness of God, the blessings of God and appropriate them properly. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.